Hello, and welcome to the Primordial Soup Pot. I'm Rustin Perret, and I'm here with my co-host. I'm Aaron Johnson. Every couple of weeks, Aaron and I will get together to talk about talk about some topics in the wild and wonderful world of ecology, evolution, and natural history. And uh, this week, we've decided to talk about marshes, right? Yeah, marshes. Yeah. So, full disclosure, when I recommended that we talk about marshes, I uh, forgot the distinction between a marsh and a swamp. <laughs> Do you know how that, that threw me off so much? Okay, yeah. first we have to describe what a marsh is and how it differs from swamps, bogs, etc. Correct, correct. But that threw me in a loop because there's so many things I was looking at. And I'm like, you know what? Rustin's probably get on about how, you know, this is technically a swamp or a bog. So I, I burned through a lot of topics before I found one. Yeah, um, I just kind of said, screw it. And went with the topic that I was going to do anyway. And um, now this is now this is the marshy swamp episode instead of just the marsh episode. Well, I could have changed everything then. Sorry. All right. Well, let's uh, let's explain what they all are. OK. Marsh generally is like a, a flooded area where you have grasses, some maybe some vegetation, um, a swamp is basically is more like a flooded forest is was my impression of it yeah that's what i found so let's say wetlands is like the topic and there's like subtopics to it correct you know like a like a pyramid so they're all wetlands and then different types of wetlands you have the marshes which is mainly plants like grasses or maybe some small shrubbery flowers yep. and it's slow flowing waterlogged area Yep. Usually mm -hmm. nearby a larger body of water. And swamps are pretty similar, but it's dominated more by trees instead. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So. Also wanted to explain bogs. Bogs are uh, different from them because they're not usually connected to a large body of water, but they're fed by rainwater instead. So they're usually dominated by small plants and mosses. There's also a lot of dead plant material in the water. It can be a good preservative, and it's usually acidic and poor in nutrients. Right, right. So, but I don't think either of us are going to talk about a bog. So No, I just wanted to list all the types. There's also uh, fens. People forget about fens. True, true. Which is basically a bog, but they're fed by underground springs instead of rainwater. So they're a bit less acidic. And they have different grasses and sedges. They have a bit more variety. They're like the ground bogs. They get fed from the other direction. It comes up instead of going down. Exactly. Anyway, are you up or am I up? You're up. Okay, cool. So, today I'm going to be talking about Pennsylvanian swamps. So, what do you know about Pennsylvanian swamps? Well... As of five seconds ago, I learned that they have them. <laughs> oh, wait. I, I should also mention by Pennsylvanian swamps, I mean the swamps, swamps that existed. No, swamps that existed during the Pennsylvanian period, not the ones that exist in modern day Pennsylvania. Okay. 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 So do you know anything about these swamps? I know a little bit, but I don't want to steal your thunder. All right. 
Thank you for letting me keep all the thunder, at least for now. But the Pennsylvanian period lasted about 24 million years from 323 million years ago to 298 million years ago and is known as the latter half of the Carboniferous period. When describing the Carboniferous period, people will sometimes describe the whole period, but especially in the United States, we make the distinction between the earlier and the latter half. Pennsylvania is the latter half. The earlier half is known as the Mississippian. I'll talk about why in a minute, because even though we don't usually talk about geology on this show a lot, it is interesting, I promise. So the Carboniferous period, like I said, is divided in half because the continent was largely underwater for the first half. So the North American rocks from that time are made up of a lot of limestone. So this is the Mississippian. The rocks from the first half of the Carboniferous period are very different from the rocks in the second half because during the second half, mountain ranges started rising as the continent started forming one huge landmass that we would eventually call Pangaea. This resulted in a lot of low-lying areas as what was underwater slowly rose out of the water. And so these low-lying areas then formed a whole lot of swamps. And I do mean swamps. There were lots and lots of trees, not the kinds of grasses and small shrubs that would generally populate a marsh. Well, the whole episode's ruined. (laughs) (laughs) Yep, we already broke the theming. Sorry, guys, that's our show. We'll see you in another couple weeks. <laughs> you know, Have a good one. To be fair, I almost did it in episode two. What? It, it was the migration episode. I don't know if you remember that, but I was going to pick an animal that didn't migrate, but everyone thought it migrated. And I'm like, you know what? That's uh, that's the opposite. That's, that doesn't fit at all. Yeah, I would have roasted you so much for that. <laughs> I would have wondered if you even wanted to do that topic. <laughs> Like, do you, do you even care about the topic that I picked out? Like, yeah, I'm just throwing the whole thing for a loop. You're just not even going to talk about some anything that traveled at all. But anyway, these swamps in the Pennsylvanian period produced a whole lot of biological material. You know, dead plants, dead animals, that sort of thing, which then became buried over the years. Over the course of the millions of years that followed this period, this biological material was transformed by heat and pressure into coal. So, the swamps that existed hundreds of millions of years ago allowed for the formation of huge coal industries in modern Europe, China, and Appalachia, among other places. So, these swamps, in many ways, are the foundation of a lot of regional economies today. Yeah, I remember, this is the bit that I knew about it. I remember I was at Ooh, Carnegie Natural History Museum, and they had a really nice little bit about this. Yeah, yeah. They would have it in in, uh, Pittsburgh because Pittsburgh is kind of smack in the middle of this area in the present day. And so, yes, some of the Pennsylvanian swamps were in what we now know as Pennsylvania. And it was definitely named after Pennsylvania. That's where it was kind of discovered? Correct. Correct. So, like, rocks from the Mississippian period are generally associated with that area and with Mississippi the rocks from the Pennsylvania are generally associated with Appalachia and Pennsylvania kind of sucks that everyone like there are these just deposits everywhere from this period but Pennsylvania you know it just got it first beat everyone else to the punch yeah but it would have been a little weird to call the period the West Virginian so I don't know I feel like the Pennsylvania thinking whole other countries <laughs> you said it was in China right yeah yeah they have these deposits in China Although those deposits are a little different. I'll talk about why later, though. Mm, Okay. But yeah, they have these kinds of deposits are in England. Pretty much anywhere, a lot of places with really large coal industries have deposits from this period. There are coal deposits from other periods in Earth's history, but this particular period is a huge source of them. Anyway, 
enough about that. Let's talk about the swamps themselves. So this period, for those who don't know, is way before the dinosaurs. You know, tens of millions of years. Like, reptiles didn't even exist at the beginning of the Pennsylvanian period. They actually evolved right in the middle of it. So that's one of the, one of the defining characteristics of this era, actually. In terms of what did live here, mostly it was a lot of fern-like plants. So there were these huge coniferous trees that kind of looked like modern cypress trees. So this kind of gave the whole area the look of, like, a giant bayou so basically the whole continent kind of looked like louisiana that gives you an idea of life in the pennsylvanian period minus the gators minus the gators but i don't know if you heard about what lived in these swamps i think you'd take the gators in a heartbeat personally so we also know that for these swamps the seasons were really uniform the same way that they are in today's tropics and we know this because the fossils of plants from this period lack rings in their structure so in seasonal areas, the plants and especially the trees have rings which distinguish between periods of seasonal growth. But in the tropics, the growth is pretty constant because the seasons don't really change that much, at least in some areas of the tropics. And so those plants don't really have rings that separate those periods. So if you kind of think about like around the holidays, people put on a little bit more weight every time. That's kind of what trees do with rings. If you want to think about it that way. They're really indulging, you know, and there's all the pressure. There's all the good food to add a little bit to the side. Who doesn't? Right. Were we the judge? But then for the rest of the year, you, the, the temptations aren't there and you kind of stay put, you know? They feel bad. They got the resolutions in place. They try. Exactly. And you know what? They lasted a lot longer in the gym than your average person. They made it all the way to March. We got to give them something for that. Absolutely. I will, I will definitely give those people a crisp high five for their efforts. Most people be out by January 13th, so good for them. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, so if you don't really have them, the seasons are in indistinguishable, and as a plant, you can grow all year. So the plants from the Pennsylvanian period, and specifically from these swamps, mirror those characteristics of modern-day tropical plants, which is how we know there weren't really seasons. Another thing about this area was that it was subject to rapid fluctuations in water level. So it would rise and fall throughout the course of the day, possibly due to tidal fluctuations, but we don't really know that. But overall, it was a very productive, dynamic ecosystem, which resulted in a lot of important evolutions. One of these was the amniotic egg, which appeared about 318 million years ago. The amniotic eggs are eggs that have a thicker coating, and so they can be laid on land without drying out. So basically like the eggs that are laid by modern day reptiles and birds. This allowed vertebrates to live fully ter terrestrial lives for the first time ever. So if you hate the water, be thankful that your ancestors found out how to lay eggs on land. Because without it, we would have had to return to the water, at least for part of our lives, to lay eggs and make sure that they didn't dry out. Mm. Or either live our entire lives in water as some form of fish lake creature. Without amniotic eggs, we'd probably still be living part of our lives in a pond somewhere. So it's a really important evolution that occurred during the middle of the Pennsylvanian period. Yeah, yeah, without a doubt. And it allowed all life to expand beyond these waterlogged regions. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, not all life. There was already life outside these waterlogged regions, but at least for vertebrates. Oh, yes, for vertebrates. Right. The evolution of the amniotic egg also led to the evolution of reptiles, who would come to dominate the planet as dinosaurs in another 70 million years or so. But that's further down the line. It's not really the topic of this particular bit. But the perhaps the most unique aspect of these swamps wasn't the eggs, reptiles, plants, lack of seasons... But 
the air itself. So the atmosphere of that time was roughly a third oxygen. That might not sound like a lot, but that's 40 to 50% more oxygen than today in the atmosphere of the time. So this allowed for the truly dominant animals of this period to thrive. You got any guesses? I know exactly what it is. Bring in the bugs. Hell yeah. This group was the arthropods. And let me tell you, the arthropods of this period were truly magnificent. And there are two in particular I really want to highlight. The first of them being Arthropleura. Have you heard of this one? Dude, you're in my home turf. Of course I know Arthropleura. (laughs) Big millipede boy. Absolutely. Arthropleura was a relative of modern millipedes, but like a relative who took a lot of steroids. Like all the steroids. I say all the steroids because Arthropleura was the length of a small car and about two feet wide. I'm just going to pause to let that sink in for a bit. It's like a jumbo sleeping bag. You could hollow this thing out and crawl inside and maybe not have a great night's sleep, but you could fit in it. You'd have to be really skinny, but you could do it, yeah. Flat Stanley would have a great time. Oh, he'd have a field day with that. For sure, for sure. Although they were not carnivorous, they still had large front mandibles that could probably be really deadly. I don't know. It died out hundreds of millions of years before I was born, but I still wouldn't want to mess with it. So, needless to say, this animal's pretty frequently listed among the most terrifying prehistoric animals ever. And, yeah, with good reason. What are you making that dismissive noise about? I don't know. I think there's a lot worse. Than a giant millipede the size of a car? See, here's the thing. Any big dinosaur, I think, is automatically worse. People will say, oh, the long neck ones, they're the herbivores. They won't bother us. You know, that was like the very first thing you saw in Jurassic Park. Elephants kill people. Bulls kill people. Bison, hippos, they're all herbivores. This is true. This is true. And I'm not arguing that it is one of the most deadly. I am arguing that it is one of the most terrifying. There's a difference. I am terrified of centipedes and millipedes, but I know they're really no threat to me. It's an irrational fear that I have. All right, I'll give you that. Right? So the thought of one the size of a car is downright nightmarish. You know what I mean? Yeah, but, you know, on the other hand, it's only a couple degrees away from, like, an all-you-can-eat lobster buffet if you wrangle one of these. How do you know that it's edible? Most animals are. Just a little prep work. Mo- crabs, lobsters, they're just big bugs. That's all they are. They're really not that dissimilar if you put it in the broad scheme of things. Besides, here's the other thing too. If you just scale up a millipede, that hide is going to be really, really thick. How am I going to penetrate that? Life finds a way. I mean... <laughs> life <you> finds <laughs> a way. That's not life, man. That's death finding a way. I don't care if you have to get a 50 anti-material rifle to take one of those things out. Yeah, I need like a 50 cal or something, maybe a bazooka. I'm just saying this thing is built like a tank. I don't I think it's more likely that it eats me than vice versa. Anyway, the the next one I want to talk about is Meganeura. You know what this one is? Of course I know what this one is. You you <laughs> you lead though. I follow. Yeah, this is the most Aaron Johnson topic I've ever I've ever picked. So, I'm going to set the scene for you here. Well, not for you. I'm more for the listeners. You already know where I'm going with this. But Imagine for a minute that you're a small reptile running along the floor of this swamp forest. 
you step outside your burrow into the sunshine, just, you know, get a little fresh air. Then something swoops down, picks you off the ground, and carries you up to the top of a giant tree where it starts to eat you alive. What is this creature? Well, keep in mind that at this time, reptiles barely existed and there were no mammals. Bees and wasps wouldn't evolve for another hundred million years or so. So, what does this leave to dominate the skies? That would be the dragonflies. And Meganura was basically a dragonfly the size of a small hawk, which fed on anything it could catch, from other insects to amphibians to reptiles. So, when you look at today's dragonflies, which are already badass enough in their own right, between their ability to catch mosquitoes and the way that they're able to fly in all directions and have these extraordinary acrobatic capabilities, then you scale that up to the size of a hawk, that's pretty scary, right? Yeah, no, that... I'll give you that. That's terrifying. Those things move quick. Yeah. Like, they have... I think that dragonflies maybe have some competition with hummingbirds, but I think they have a shot at being the most skilled flyers in the animal kingdom in terms of just acrobatic ability and the way they can move in all four directions and things like that. It's really remarkable. They eat their prey as they're flying. Yes. You don't see birds... I don't think you see birds doing that. You see some birds do that. It does depend on the bird. Like, you you think about, like, seabirds and stuff. Okay, they, they can just pick it up and start chewing on it as they're moving. Eh, I guess that's not too hard. But still, for a dragonfly, you know, that that's impressive. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I'd actually love to dive into modern-day dragonflies a little bit more, and uh, hopefully I'll get to do that in a future episode because they're really, really cool. Oh, yeah. And totally badass. So... There is a question associated with this whole story, which is, why did prehistoric arthropods get so large, and could it happen again today? Right? People see these articles about these huge bugs that existed millions and millions of years ago, and they get really scared that modern-day bugs could evolve along the same path and become just as large. Well, I alluded to it earlier, but basically it's because the oxygen content was so much higher at this period in Earth's history. So... Arthropods rely upon a completely different method of breathing, which is frankly far less efficient than our own. So, since it's easier to more efficiently exchange nutrients and gases with your environment when you're smaller, because of the increased surface area to mass ratio, which we've talked about before, arthropods tend to be smaller. So this means that they can more efficiently exchange gases, even though their method of gas exchange isn't as good. This also isn't a universal rule, right? Because there are really large arthropods that live today. But those tend to have gills for the most part. They do tend to have gills or they have more complex methods of gas exchange. They put more effort into it. They have much larger respiratory systems than their smaller counterparts. So when the oxygen content was much higher, arthropods could be that much larger without developing more complex or efficient means of gas exchange. Thus, we have giant dragonflies and millipedes crawling around everywhere. Furthermore, it's possible that arthropods had to become large to even survive these conditions at all. So, at high enough concentrations, oxygen actually becomes toxic, right? A lot of people don't realize that. And so, arthropods are not capable of regulating their oxygen levels when they're in the larval stage. They'd only develop those abilities when they're adults. So, if the larvae are small and have a greater surface area to mass ratio, in an atmosphere that's really high in oxygen, 
they could just get overloaded with oxygen and essentially poisoned. However, if the larvae are larger, they receive less oxygen from their environment relative to their body size and are able to survive to adulthood. So, in some ways, it's almost like arthropods had to be bigger at that time period. Yeah, I know there's a... It's still debated on what the full cause is because I think there's been some experiments where they rear insects in environments where the oxygen levels are greatly increased and they don't really display the huge size differences in their development. True. And I, I saw those same kind of experiments, but my response to that was that they didn't really have millions of years of evolution. That's also true, you know. Kind of hard to replicate that bit. Yeah. It would be really, really difficult to pitch that study to somebody who could fund it. You know, like, hey, if you fund my research, your great, 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 great grandkids might eventually get to find out the results. How does that sound? But anyway, this is why arthropods and bugs just won't get this large today. There simply isn't enough oxygen in the atmosphere to support large arthropod species. And arthropods can't have big larvae because they won't get enough oxygen and then they'll wind up suffocating. Eventually, though, these swamps had to come to an end because obviously they don't exist today. All good things do. Indeed. This happened due to the rise of those mountains, right? Remember I was talking about the mountains lifted those water-covered areas of North America out of the ocean, essentially? Well, they kept rising, and so over time... This reduced the amount of lowland, which was flooded toward the end of the Carboniferous period. So the swamps eventually dried up. It was kind of like lifting pasta out of boiling water with a colander, right? Once you get the pasta out of the water, it's all dried up, it's no longer saturated, and that's more or less what happened to the swamps, at least in my mind. I don't know. I'm, I kind of work a little bit weirdly that way. I think it's a good explanation. Anyway, but yeah, the, these swamps would carry on into the next period of geologic time in China, however, but even there, they eventually dried up and would not return for several million years. So remember how I was talking about how in China it was a little bit different? That's because unlike in North America, the swamps in China were not lifted further out of their lowland areas by these mountain ranges. So they were able to exist for millions of years after the end of the Carboniferous period whereas they pretty much died out at the end of that period here in North America. So the coal deposits in China go on for layers and layers above the Pennsylvanian, so it's a little bit different. Furthermore, by the time the oxygen levels in the atmosphere had decreased, these monstrous bugs could no longer exist. I imagine that uh, vertebrates also played a role in their demise. Competition from bigger, complex animals. They did. They did, 100%. Because... Like I said, the evolution of the amniotic egg was an important factor. Reptiles also had a more efficient method of gas exchange that they evolved. And this would become more and more important as oxygen levels in the atmosphere decreased. So once that happened, arthropods began to decline. Their swamp-like habitats were, di were disappearing. And so they eventually went extinct. And reptiles, which are more well adapted to those new upland areas thrived and were able to evolve into dinosaurs and came to dominate the planet for millions of years. Regardless of the fact that they died out, though, their remains do live on in the form of coal, which humans have been using for centuries, which is a really important part of our world today. So 
even though it sounds like it might not necessarily be important because these swamps existed millions of years ago, they are an important part of your life. So, that's my piece. And those are the Pennsylvanian swamps. Be thankful for all the big bugs out there. Yep. That died to heat the homes of your ancestors. <laughs> I hope I did that topic justice. I know that that's a topic that's more up your alley than mine, generally. I think so. I think you summed it up pretty well. I figured uh, I, I figured I'd beat you to it, honestly. One of us had to talk about that eventually. Anyways, I think you're up now. I am up. I am up. I, I just got a little something something today. Just a, just a little nice. little bit. A little treat for the kids. Uh, literally, actually. So I'm going to be discussing oh, okay. a certain... <laughs> Not like that. I'm going to be discussing a certain plant that while most people probably couldn't recognize if they saw it directly, I guaranteed it's impacted their life in one way or another. This is the marshmallow, not the marsh. I'm going to call mar. I call marshmallows personally, even though there's no E. This is not the marshmallow. This is the marshmallow, the plant. You familiar with this? A little bit. I've heard of it before. But you're trying to distinguish your plant from what goes in a s'more. It's kind of like that one clip on Family Feud where that lady's trying to come up with a different way of saying mother. And she keeps going between mommy and mommy. She keeps like saying the same thing over and over and over again, just with a different inflection. All right. Well, now from here on out, they're all marshmallows. So we're talking about marshmallows. Marshma- marshmallow, marshmallow, marshmallow. Oh, my God. Does it go well with chocolate and a graham cracker? It just might. <laughs> so this is a midsize herbaceous plant that can grow to about three to four feet tall. They have several whitish pink flowers, and they look like a decent ornamental plant. That's okay. Really all I all I got to describe. It's hard to describe plants. I, <laughs> I, I didn't even bother with notes like, do the leaves come in threes or something like that? It's a plant. I, there's not much for me to go off of here. It's a plant. It's got flowers. What else do you need? In yeah. Anyways, the scientific name is... Althea officinalis. The Althea part is derived from the Greek word to heal, and well, the officinalis. Shit. Why didn't you? Why didn't you say that? Why are we calling it a marshmallow? You could just call it by its scientific name and avoid all the confusion. Well, you have to understand. It there's an evolution here. You'll see. Okay. Uh, the officinalis bit just means it's important to medicine or important to food. Okay. Are the gears turning now? Not quite. You gotta spell it out a little more for me. Okay. So this plant is just a little backstory. This plant is native to Europe, North Africa, and Asia, so kind of a really broad area in a global sense. And as the name suggests, it grows in marshes. That's how it relates to the topic, because I actually stuck to the topic this time. So just based off of its range and some of the gardening websites I've read about it, it seems like a pretty tough plant. It just needs a very moist soil to grow in, i.e. marshes. They do find in USDA ranges of 3 to 7 and can tolerate a pretty wide range of soil conditions. So, nice. I mean, maybe put it in your backyard. Could be cool. Yeah, yeah if you uh, live in a, a marshy or swampy area. Not even. I think you can grow in a garden if you just, you know, put it in a uh, maybe a low-lying area. Gives a lot of 
water flowing in, poor drainage, maybe. You're describing a marsh, but okay. Okay, I could also be describing a storm drain. <laughs> okay, but what's most important about this plant is its medicinal properties. So okay. it is used in a wide variety of traditional medicines. And because of how widespread the plant is, a lot of different cultures use, a lot of different cultures had their own uses for the plant. So groups like the Romans, Egyptians, Syrians, Chinese, the list goes on. Okay. Records of this plant go back to about 2000 BC. So this has been with people for a pretty long time. Wow. Wow. All right. Basically, every part of the plant is used in some sort of medical or culinary sense. The flowers, the leaves, the sap, the tap roots. I read one site that said everything in the plant is edible except the actual fruits that it forms. That's really ironic. Not going to Yeah, yeah, it is. So, of course, the marshmallow would eventually become the marshmallow. How? It's actually not exactly a clear path to how it became the modern-day candy. There's a, there's a big gap. So we know they were eaten in a variety of ways, sometimes just used as herbs and seasonings mixed with other plants as a salad or even fried. There's still modern recipes for it, too. I found one on how you can actually use it as a substitute for egg whites. Really? Okay. Yeah. But what a lot of recipes involved at their core were either the taproot or the sap. You kind of mash it up until it forms a thick, white, and gooey substance. And from there, you could mix it with other ingredients to make a sort of sugary goo. So I found that the ancient Egyptians would mix it with honey and nuts to make something that sounds like it'd be terrible to get out of a carpet. Yeah. Yeah. You're making this sound really appetizing right now. I'm going to have to edit out the sound of my tummy rumbling. And from there, there's a bit of a gap in the marshmallow history. It's referenced in many cultures, but it's kind of hard to pinpoint how it spread or originated. And because of how wide-ranging the plant is, I'm sure a lot of people discover the uses for it independently. So I don't think we're going to pinpoint the exact, you know, origin of it. So instead, we're just going to fast forward to the 1800s <laughs> in France. So candy makers in France modified the ancient recipe to make a version known as pâté de gumave. Let's go with that. Which translates roughly to marshmallow paste. Okay. This would be the marshmallow root mixed with sugar and egg whites and whipped into a paste. It would then be poured into a mold to form the candy. So they made like hard marshmallow fluff. Pretty much. It wasn't quite aerated. It was, it was probably a bit crunchier. Additionally, I told you, marshmallows were also good for medicine. That was kind of their primary use, but I think they also... I'm not sure if they actually taste good themselves or if they only tasted good because people added honey to it. Okay, dude, you're sounding a lot like Willy Wonka here. Come on, marshmallows are great medicine? That's some that's some Willy Wonka shit. It is, it is. They were, it was incredibly popular in medicine and culinary. It was a, it was a two-pronged thing. It was all in one of its time. So marshmallow sap is known for its soothing properties. Great for soothing... In particular, irritated mucous membranes, which just mean it works well for treating coughs or sore throats. Oh, okay. So doctors would undergo a similar process, but they would serve it as a hard candy rather than a soft one. So it's literally a cough drop. Oh, all right, all right. Yeah. And 
you can actually still buy marshmallow medicinal products. I'm not a doctor, you know, so do your own research on these. I'm I'm not <laughs> certain about it. But some studies have shown that they can have effects like helping with skin irritation, healing wounds, and pain relief. However, if that involves just smearing it all over your body, I don't think it's worth it because it's sticky as hell. I mean, sure, it might help with your sunburn, but at what cost? You're going to be picking up lint like there's no tomorrow. Walk around like a human dust bunny after five minutes. I think you're lucky if you're if you only pick up lint personally. Uh, I don't want to see what you actually collect. So back to the French candies. At the time, the marshmallow candies were made by hand, and it would take about a day to fully solidify. So if you couple this with high demand for the candies and short supply, it's easy to see why it was getting pretty expensive. Around the late 1800s, of course, there's a lot of industrialization going on. And in particular, the starch mogul system was introduced. What was that? This was a tray filled with cornstarch that was shaped into a mold. Couldn't really find any photos of it. Essentially, they laid out some cornstarch, and as it kind of hardens, they just kind of make the shapes that they want. And then... It's literally just a bold, I think. I, I don't know what the major innovation was here. I think it was just a cheap-to-make mold, and you could also recycle the cornstarch afterwards. Oh, okay. Well, that's important. Yeah. Anyways, uh, the liquid candies could be poured into the mold and then kind of stamped down, and this was a great way to industrialize the process and, of course, reduce the cost to the candy itself. And unfortunately, around this time, the marshmallow was removed from the marshmallows altogether. How did that happen? Well, entirely sure how... No, actually, I do know how it happens. It's kind of sad, but it makes sense. The marshmallow is really not the core ingredient here. It's just sugar and water and, you know, something to make it puffy. So even though the marshmallow plants were fairly fast-growing and common, I couldn't really find any information if they were ever cultivated on a large scale. It's just the marshmallow candy just really needed water, sugar, and air and something sticky to hold together. It was replaced with gelatin. Oh, yeah. 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 Gelatin comes from boiling leftover animal skin, bones, tendons, cartilage, etc. And when you consider how factory farming and industrialization of these farms ramped up over the decades, using animal byproducts is just a lot more cost-efficient than harvesting sap from a marsh-dwelling plant. You gotta pay someone to go out there and get it. Whereas these things are kind of just lying around. Yeah, that's pretty much the only thing that would be more cost effective than, you know, using a hardy common plant that pretty much grows everywhere. Yeah. And so by the mid 1900s, marshmallow manufacturing was widespread and marshmallows, of course, had become a global candy. Uh, don't really need to go on past that. I'm sure everyone's heard of a marshmallow. If you hadn't. So could you buy like vegan marshmallows that are still made from the marshmallow plant i'm willing to bet you can't buy vegan marshmallows but even then they're probably not made from the plant they're probably made from something more you know something that's grown on a larger level there's got to be a plant substitute for gelatin i'd be surprised if there wasn't oh there definitely is i'm just saying in this case it could be this plant i think it could be but i didn't find any particularly And also, on the side note, I wanted to see if there's any evidence of marshmallow farming, because I was wondering if it was just traditionally just harvest from the wild, or if it was actually farmed on a larger scale. And I I found nothing on this, because all I found was April Fool's articles. 
from like the early 2000s with videos of farmers and they're plucking marshmallow candies off the branches of trees, which uh, was not really helpful to my case. <laughs> it's pretty funny, though. It was pretty funny, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I, I, got, I got nothing out of that bit there. Anyways, that's the history of the marshmallows and how they became the marshmallows. Start off as a medicinal herbal treat and evolved into a mass manufactured candy that shares nothing with the original other than the name. Well, I'm willing to bet money that after today, there's going to be a, a huge grassroots campaign to make marshmallows out of marshmallows, but only in Belgium. Only in Belgium. That's where we're booming, apparently. Yeah, that, that is our most popular audience. You can still buy uh, marshmallow-like cough syrups, actually, in some countries. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, I mean, it's still useful. Nice little herbal treat. Oh, I did read it can actually lower your blood sugar levels, so uh, if you have diabetes, watch out with the marshmallow. Mm. Again, I'm yeah. not a doctor, so you know what? Don't listen to me. Do whatever you want. <laughs> it's a great thing to say in the middle of a podcast. <laughs> yeah, come on, guys. What are you even doing here? Yeah, I mean, I even looked, and in, in the United States, you can buy like a 10-pound bag of the roots for, you know, it's fairly cheap. You get a specific price, or are you just going to leave us hanging like that? No, I think it was like 15 bucks. Oh, yeah, it's not bad at all. I don't think it's really in high demand, so. Yeah, that's probably why. But, I mean, if you could make delicious stuff with it, why not? I don't know. I, I never read that it actually tasted good anywhere. So, <laughs> maybe there's a reason it was dropped out. I thought about doing, like, a little bit where I do, like, a, a reveal, and I would I would taste a marshmallow made from marshmallows and of course i didn't have one i was just gonna crinkle some cellophane in front of the microphone and go mm. but you know that didn't come about well now if we ever actually do a taste test no one's gonna believe that it's actually happening <laughs> no everyone's just gonna think we're faking it because you said you would fake it yep that's my piece awesome thank you for that so, uh, with that being done, what are you thinking about for next episode? Ooh, I had a, so a couple things I suggested. I said, uh, research animals. There's a lot of those. I also said different nature reserves. There's quite a few of those. A lot of cool ones. But, uh, would anything you had in mind? Yeah. Yeah, I have a couple topics. Um... One was Deep Sea Part 2, because there are a lot of... There's one deep sea animal that I've been wanting to talk about for about a month and a half now, since I did the research for the initial episode. I do want to get to that eventually. I feel like that's going to be awesome. But the one I want to do more is that uh, since summer is will be in full swing by the time this episode rolls around, basically, I think we should do Beaches. Obviously, I was going to say we did a beach episode, but we didn't actually do a beach episode. We did an island episode during which I talked about barrier islands. Which are beaches. Which, which are have beaches. beaches. It's not the exact same thing. Okay, well, I'll tell you what. We could do a nature reserve, and then you can pick whatever beach you want. All right, fine. Fine. That we'll works for me. We'll do beaches next. All right, well, well, all right. Okay, we'll do nature reserves. Okay. All right. We, we did your pick last time. All right. Fair enough. Fair enough. Nature reserves it is. All right. Sounds good. So with that decided, you want to take us out? Yep. 
If you enjoyed this episode, please give us a like and review on your podcast app of choice. If you have a suggestion for a future episode, you can contact us at souppotpodcast at twitter.com or you can email us at theprimordialsouppot at gmail.com. Sounds great. And until next time, I'm Rustin Perret. And I'm Eric Johnson. See ya. Bye.